0: Listening to Gray City Portland. This week, we're calling it a classic, but it's probably a classic that many of us aren't actually familiar with. Um, I, I like to think of it like if you're listening to the greatest hits album, this is the secret track. This is the one where if you listen to the last track for like 20 minutes, all of a sudden it's like, ah, the secret track. The one no one really knows about, but it's super legit. That's what we're looking at this morning. Um, Elisha and the widow's oil. Ring any bells? Yep, yep, we got a fan. Oh yeah, that's the one right there. Elisha and the widow, or the widow's oil, is what we're going to look at today. So if you brought a Bible... Um, now would be the time to open it or turn it on. As always, if you'd like to grab one of our Bibles out of one of the boxes in the center aisle here, you are very welcome to do that. And we're going to be going to 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. As you can see, and here we go. Just a little context before we jump right in. Um, this is a, the time and the period of Israel, God's family, uh, God's people, if you will. Uh, the, the nation's actually split into a northern and southern kingdom. God's people are, are, are quickly beginning to, to lose the plot. Um, they still believe God is real. They still kind of know who they are. But it, Yahweh worship... God's people, knowing who their God truly is, how faithful he was, and what it means to, to continue trusting him and be the people that he's, he's rescued them, even created them to be. They're, they're losing the plot. Uh, and so what we find consistently over, over a few hundred years is that there's a small group of faithful people called the prophets. And these would be like those living in the city that's quite debauched. Uh, Most people can't be bothered to think about Jesus or church or or whatever. But there's a few, by the grace of God, who've held on. They, They refuse to forget. Now our God is faithful. He's good, he's strong, he's generous. He's always taking care of us and we refuse to forget who he is. And who we are. And so these are the prophets. Um, There's like a band of prophets. Sometimes they're referred to as like the company of the prophets. Or if you're like a member of the prophet gang, you might be considered one of the sons of the prophets. And so as we jump into this story about Elisha, who's kind of one of the lead prophets. He's referred to as the man of God. Um, This is taking place during that time. So there we go. There's the context as good as I can describe it. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. Some translations might say revered the Lord. But, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. That's serious debt. And she said, "Your servant has nothing in the house sorry, skip the line And Elisha said to her, "What shall I do for you? Tell me. It's rhetorical. Tell me. What have you in the house?" And she said, "Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil." Then he said, "Go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. That's super cool. Amen. Amen. Um, let Let me just pray for us. Father, Thank you for this very cool thing that you did. It was a long time ago, but as has already been said this morning, you don't change. Your character is the same as it was then, as it is today, and as it will be forever. And I pray that this morning as we consider this rather astounding story, that you would be our teacher, you would open our hearts. Our minds and speak to us through it this morning in Jesus name, amen Okay, so this is the story about a woman who trusted trusted God, or perhaps more uh, accurately trusted her husband who trusted God, presumably, who also trusted another man named Elisha because he was his servant who obviously also trusted God. And so this is a story of a woman who was attempting to trust God via her husband, um, and it didn't really seem to work out initially because she comes to Elisha and she says, My husband, your servant who you know revered God, is now dead. Oh, and by the way, he left us in debt. Crippling debt. The kind of debt that if you don't pay off, the creditor comes and literally takes away your children so that he can sell them into slavery. And that's just how the ancient world worked, apparently. Crippling debt. Um, We have to... We have to just think about this for a second. I'm always looking for an excuse to use the chalkboard. If you've never tried it, I highly recommend it. (laughs) So here we go. We got the widow um, and her two boys. We've got her husband. God, and of course um, Elisha, who is sort of like the leader of the prophets, the gang of, of the faithful followers of Yahweh. So, as I've said, the widow obviously uh, had some level of trust in her husband, um, and presumably she also had some level of trust. In God, otherwise, why would she have been going to Elisha, the man of God, for help in the first place? Unless it was just to simply like complain, like you did this, so what are you going to do about it? Um, her husband obviously had faith in God; he trusted God, and um, Elijah as well. He was the servant of this man, uh, Elisha clearly the man of God had faith in God and of course the husband's dead Um, and therefore the widow's now coming to this guy who presumably at least a little kind of blames him what's the point trusting God in a finite and broken world uh, which is our world Can, can we agree on that Mm-hmm. Trusting God in a finite and broken world is rarely anything less than complicated. There's a lot of people involved. It's not just this. I mean, that would be beautiful if, that, if it was just lit- literally as simple as that. Just trust God um, and get on with you know people and relationships and all of that. Churches, you know, whatever. Uh, but no, actually, to trust God in this world where real people are involved and where those people occasionally actually get sick and die and, and resources run out, is complicated. It's really complicated. And it's hard, and it's intense, and it's wonderful. And this is where our story begins. It's, it is cool. It is cool. It's living. Ken, this is... Just enjoying church this morning. keep it coming. Amens, hallelujahs it's cool, it's all good. Just if you 're feeling it, just just shout out. Peter, I know how you guys roll in your church. So by the way, Peter DeSan, who's the pastor of our every nation church in San Marcos, Texas, is here with his family this morning. Good to see you. Yeah. Every nation is sort of like the larger family of churches The Grace City is a part of, Grace City in Portland and Corvallis, and just anyways, they're here visiting. Some of you may remember Peter preaching here uh, several months ago. So he, he grew up in Bend, and apparently you come back for weddings and funerals, I guess, yeah. Well, okay, so yeah, amens, hallelujahs, all that. We're starting out with a woman. Next slide, please. Who says that you know that your servant feared the Lord, but... Okay, let's, let's connect with this for, for just a second. Have you ever felt that? You know that your servant feared the Lord, but... But life's not working out exactly the way I had imagined. But the person who I loved more than anyone else on this planet who also trusted you is dead. You know that your servant trusted God, but that didn't work out and now I'm left with a debt that's so crippling, the only two living creatures on this planet that I value more than anyone or anything else are about to be taken away because my problem's actually just that big. That's life. That's life. That's the world we live in. It's complicated and it is very cool because the story's only just getting started. What does Elisha say? He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's hard not to read in a little bit of tone What do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? I don't know, what's what's the tone there? Apparently, it is a rhetorical question because she doesn't respond or he doesn't give her enough time to respond. So I suppose it's kind of as if to say, look, you know, there's nothing I can do for you. Although apparently there was a few instances where this man actually did pray for someone to come back from the dead. I don't know Why? This was not one of those instances. But he says, what can I do for you? She doesn't answer, so he asks a follow-up question and says, right, what do you have in your house? Okay, you say you have nothing, but what do you have? And she says, I've not got a thing. I'm literally broke. I've got nothing. Okay, technically, I've got a jar of oil. I've got a half-empty bottle of olive oil, which I don't know how much you know about the ancient Near East, but that would have been uh, seen as some sort of like commodity. Oil, it's a, it's a precious commodity in the ancient Near East. She could have sold it for a little something. In fact, if she had a lot, it, she, would, she would have been quite well off. Um, but as it would seem, it wasn't much. Just Just one little jar. In my mind, I imagine it was probably about this full, Like, what is she going to do with it, really? And what's Elisha say? Right. Okay, so you do have something, technically. Here's what I want you to do. Go out and find as many empty vessels as you can possibly find. Not too few, he says. Take them, gather them together, go into your house, close the door, you and your sons, and take the little you've got and begin to pour it out. And so she does. And somehow it begins to multiply. Now, at this point, some of you, some of us, might struggle a little bit. Um, because we are, we have been, I would argue, conditioned quite aggressively to think as naturalists, materialists, full stop. And so when we come across miracles in the Bible, we really, really, really want to just immediately like, oh, well, you know, it was metaphorical, it's spiritual. Yeah, obviously it's metaphorical, but there's nothing in the story to indicate that it didn't actually happen, that the God we're talking about who keeps interjecting into broken situations and people's lives occasionally According to his prerogative, actually does things that are supernatural, miracles, miracles. I don't know about you, but as much as I struggle to like believe that like God still does that, can still do that, because I, I've just I've been conditioned, as anyone else. I refuse not to believe that God can't do that. I choose to believe. That the God who raised Jesus from the dead is still able and willing today to work miracles in people's lives. Still complicated, still hard, but it's wonderful, it's super cool. Oh my God. (laughs) Take what you've got and begin to pour out. Guys, we're 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 getting, into, we're getting into Christological theology now. We're beginning to veer towards Jesus. Take what you've got and begin to pour it out. What, what are the implications? You know what this really is? This is an enacted parable. If we were trying to find some sort of like New Testament equivalent of what this story is like, this is an enacted parable. This isn't just, oh, you need money. I mean, I suppose Elisha could have been like, here, I'll write you a check. What's your bank details? I'll transfer the cash. No problem. Problem solved, right? Now, he wants to, in this moment, obviously, he's being led by God. He wants to reveal something about God himself to this woman and to the readers, us, here, today. What is it about God? What's the... uh, What are we meant to understand about the very nature of this God, whom the woman, who Elisha, who everyone's looking to for help? If you want to experience the provision of God, take what you have and start pouring it out. But what if it's like next to nothing? What if it's hardly anything? Take what you have and begin to pour it out. But it's not going to help anyone. It's pathetic. It's like, wait, well, it's a drop of oil. Take what you have and begin to pour it out. But what am I going to have? Oh, what are you going to have? What do you have anyways? It was nothing to begin with. Take what you have <laughs> and begin to pour out. This is, um, this is God's economy, this is absolutely not like our actual American economy. This is not capitalism at all. Take what you have, which is virtually nothing in the grand scheme of things, find as many empty vessels you can possibly find around you, and start to pour out. What, is, what are the empty vessels? Well, obviously, we're talking about empty jars. But if this is, in fact, an enacted parable, there's something else altogether. It could, be, it could be a situation. It could be a broken dream. It could be a hurting heart. It could be someone else who's actually more dirt poor than you are. It could be someone who's like emotionally bankrupt, who's lonely, Someone who's got even less than you've got. They're the empty vessel. And guys, if in case you're just completely unaware of the world around you, there's a lot of empty vessels around us. Everywhere. I mean, you can just look to the person next to you and say, tell me about that part of your soul that just feels empty inside. Guys, we've all got empty vessels in and around our lives. So what's the woman do? Um, well, she does what she's instructed to do and she begins to pour out. What was what was the woman's problem, the widow's problem? This is actually really good leadership, by the way. Uh, Elisha doesn't simply give her a solution. What he does is is position her to realize she had a much bigger problem than she had ever even realized in the first place. What was actually the widow's problem? Her problem was that she had too much. Okay, just bear with me for a second. This is so counterintuitive. She said, I've got nothing, when in fact she had a little something, when in fact she had too much. Because the problem wasn't that she was like totally broke, that she had nothing. The problem was that the little bit she had, it would seem she was clinging onto. And Elisha said, you need provision. You're scared to death for your future. You're about to lose your boys. Here's how God's economy works take what you have and begin to pour out. Her problem wasn't that she didn't have enough. Her problem was that she still had something. Guys, this is like Christianity 101. This is called sacrificial love. And if we as a community can grasp this, get get it as a revelation and then begin to live it out it changes everything it changes your marriage if you've ever given that a go it changes the way you love and serve your children it changes the way you interact with your colleagues and supervisors the people that you work with It changes the way you see the person begging on the corner. If we can begin to take what little we have and start pouring out knowing that in God's economy he can only and ever fill empty vessels, this changes everything in life. Because what happens when you take the little you've got isn't much, and you pour it out into the empty vessel next door. What are you left with? An empty vessel. Now, God's ready to work. God's like, right. I, I don't do the whole, like, well, let me just top you up. We'll um, top up there. We'll heat up. No. In God's economy, he only fills empty vessels. That little bit you're clinging to, that's your little plan B, your little get out. God says, pour it out. Because I want to fill you up. But I need you empty first. Super risky. Super risky. Because let's, let's be honest. Your fear, my fear, our fear, yeah, but... Yeah, but. <laughs> Hang on. Like, I know I'm broke. But at least, I mean, this is like my little comfort oil, right? I mean, I know it's not much. But at the very least, I can like, I don't know. What do you, what do you make with the oil these days? Add a little balsamic vinegar or you know, whatever, kind of eggs. I don't know what you do with it. I put it in my pasta. If I pour it out. I mean like what do I even have an identity left like I could have a major existential crisis on my hands like this isn't a lot but this is is me this is all I've got if you want to experience the means by which God provides generously take what you have and begin to pour out because God only fills empty vessels and so she says right okay I did it oh I'm filled up Great. Now, I would have intended to be like, sweet. I've got two jars now. And God says, well, you got any more empty vessels around? Yeah, I collected a lot. Great. Take what you have and begin to pour out. What are you left with? Another empty vessel. And God fills it up and on and on and on. Because this is the point of the story. One of the points, I reckon, God fills empty vessels. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said in uh, the gospel according to Luke chapter 17 verse 33 that he or she who seeks to preserve their life will in the end lose it but those who lose their life for his sake and for the gospel will keep it. This is Christological theology. This is resurrection And new life. This is dying to self that God might fill you up with something realer, more substantial, something that this world and all of our efforts and good intentions cannot offer. God says, Take what you have and begin to pour it out because He only fills empty vessels. Is it risky? Absolutely. Is it scary? It scares me to death. You might be thinking, what about boundaries? Didn't I read a book recently that said something about like healthy boundaries and how relationships need to have healthy boundaries established and how it's actually healthy and even most loving oftentimes to say no? No. Um, it's a great book, I hear, haven't read it. Uh, good idea, boundaries. What do you do with that? When God calls us to love sacrificiously, sacrificially, when he says, the way I've called you to live will cost you more than you've actually got. And I'm calling you to pour yourself out over and over into the empty vessels around you so that you can experience a kind of life it only comes about when you're empty enough to receive my life what about boundaries is there ever a point in time where that becomes unhealthy i mean what if you begin to like get this sort of like martyr complex and you begin to live this sort of weird like um, uh, what's the word like when you you think that somehow god is impressed when you punish yourself asceticism is what it's called and if you pour out enough, then God will just maybe feel a little bit sorry for you and therefore kick down. And that's, that's not healthy at all. That, that's very uh, enmeshed and abusive, and uh, that's not love. So how do, you, how do you establish healthy boundaries? Elisha said to the woman... Get the empty vessels, take your two boys, go into your house and close the door. Here's what I would say about boundaries get your family together, go home, close the door, and talk to God. God pours His love into our hearts by the holy spirit whom he's given us according to romans 5:5 5, 5. jesus said that i'm going but don't worry because i'm sending another and he will be your helper and he will guide you into all truth he will teach you he will remind you he will lead you he will give you the father's heart so that you can live your life sacrificially and still thrive like i did jesus said And so we get our family together, we go in the house, we close the door, and we talk to God. And let me just encourage you though, when it comes to boundaries, typically when we we, we hear talk of boundaries, it's to do with like, let's put a boundary in place so that I don't give too much, right? Might I suggest that the opposite can also often, if perhaps not even more often, be the problem um, we can actually use the boundary sort of ethos as an excuse to stop pouring out. If I can just speak plainly. I meet people who are, oh, and I got boundaries. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to establish healthy boundaries. So I'm not going to serve more. I'm not going to give more. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> if that was one of my little kids, this is, what, this is the new thing I'm constantly saying to my boy. Um, the, the two youngest ones, I, I don't think they're quite there yet, but God bless my nine-year-old. I love him. He's, he's just constantly thinking about himself. So my new saying in the house, my boy, who are you thinking about right now? Who are you thinking about right now? Um, me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, gotcha. <laughs> who are you thinking about right now? Healthy boundaries... When it comes to limiting yourself um, from serving others too much, it's so that you can make sure that you're not simply serving yourself or serving others to a crisp. Like It's so that you can protect yourself emotionally so that you can be a good parent, so that you can be a good spouse, so that you can be a good friend, so that you can actually continue to give in a way that's sustainable and generous and like Christ. But the opposite is true as well. Sometimes I think we need to put boundaries in place to help us not use boundaries as a means of justifying selfishness. So what I mean by that is if I don't set a boundary in my life, for example, when it comes to giving, I will stop giving and quickly justify it. as like, oh, you know, I mustn't give because I don't want to like, run out of money. Now I set a boundary in place so to ensure I keep giving out. I put a boundary in place so that when my laziness kicks in, and it's, it's strong, the laziness is strong in me, it's so that when that feeling kicks in, I'm like, no, I set a boundary here. I serve others. I give. Oh, and I'm super practical. My wife and I will sit down. We did our, our annual uh, strategic family plan something like that a couple weeks ago we didn't get too far but it was our way of setting boundaries in place so that we can preserve our sanity as husband and wife and as a family and make sure that we keep pouring out even when we don't feel like it those are healthy boundaries Why, forget boundaries, why would we keep pouring ourselves out? This is the big question. Why, why would we live this way? If it's that messy and really quite risky and scary all the time, why on earth would we live like that? I mean, because isn't it all about moderation? Like, aren't we meant to kind of, you know, just like give a little, take a little, balance it out? I mean, isn't that like how love works? I give, you give, meet halfway. No, no, not at all. Um, To love like Jesus is to pour ourselves out, oftentimes despite what we may or may not get back because God loves us with no strings attached. He doesn't give something be like, all right, what are you going to do for me? What you got? And we're like, I don't know, half a cup of oil? He's like, give it back. No, he gives and he gives and he gives. Why would we live like that? Why would we pour ourselves out to empty over and over and over again without any guarantee of actually getting something back? tell you what. Have you ever heard of reciprocal affection? Of course not. I just made it up. Reciprocal <laughs> affection. We love because he first loved us. We give because he is first given to us. We pour out because he first poured himself out for us. That's reciprocal affection. God loves you. He loves us so deeply, so profoundly, so boundlessly that it is our deep honor our greatest desire to love back. At least that's the idea. That is the gospel. That's freedom. That's when pouring out becomes an act of worship. A deep and lasting joy Because I have already been filled up, and then some. If you, like myself, can I invite the band to come up, please? If you, like myself, struggle to pour out, If it's perhaps just too overwhelming, too scary, you're like, I only got this much. You don't understand where I'm coming from. If I pour this out, like I might just cave in on myself. Like what will I have left? This 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 is my identity we're talking about. And it scares you to death to pour out. That's Okay, great, fine. That's where we're all starting. So there's that. God looks at us and he doesn't say, okay, who's going to go first? You, you, me, me, you, you, no. He went first a long time ago. And he poured himself out. And then Jesus... He invites us to join him on this incredibly illogical and amazing and super cool adventure where he says, now I want you to experience the kind of life that I died for. I want you to pour out like me so that you can be filled up to overflowing. And not just for you, but for others. Because we weren't meant to just be filled. We were meant to be filled and be conduits of his love. and that's called living it's called abundant life can we stand together